Welcome back to another episode of the Sweet Spot Podcast. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from adamyongolf.com. So we've got a special guest on today that I'm very excited about. I think all of you know Mark Brody at this point, but I keep referring to him and his research on this podcast on my website. And so does Adam so much that we figured we'd have him on. So Mark, thanks for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Thanks for having me on, guys, John and Adam. Nice to meet you finally in person. Yeah, we actually, you and I have a one degree of separation. You are a professor at Columbia and my former golf coach briefly in college at NYU was Rich Muller, who's now currently the golf coach of Columbia. I know Rich quite well. Yeah, so we had, I saw him a few years ago. I went up to the campus and we had lunch and you know, he tells me the help you give those guys. But uh, yeah, I played for about five minutes for Rich. He was forced to put me in a tournament my freshman year. Luckily, I somehow pulled out the most ridiculous round of my life and finished second. And that was the end of my college career there. So we still joke about it now, but I'm glad to see he's doing well at Columbia with you guys. Well, glad you had a good time with Rich. He's a good guy. Yep. So I'm pretty sure most people listening to this podcast know who you are, but why don't you just kind of briefly introduce yourself and give your background in golf and elsewhere? So I'm a professor at Columbia Business School. That's my day job. And then I moonlight doing golf analytics. I uh, write a monthly column for uh, Golf Magazine, and I do research and consulting with PGA Tour players and coaches, the PGA Tour, the USGA, and others. So I'm basically interested in everything golf analytics, and I've been doing this for quite a few years now. It, it started off as what I thought would be a, a one or two year project and just kept getting bigger and bigger. And correct me if I'm wrong, has it been 10 years since the PGA Tour ha- adopted Strokes Gained? Yeah. So Strokes Gained putting came out in 2011, in uh, May 2011. So it's been two years and 10 years since that. And I probably started working on sort of golf analytics almost 10 years before that. So it's been a long time for me and, but really happy at the reception, which was, you know, far greater than I had ever imagined at the time. When did your book come out, Mark? I've got it sitting here with me. 2014. So it was a while after, you know, generating a whole bunch of results and research saying, well, maybe you know, average golfers would be interested in that, in these results. And so that was kind of the genesis for the book. Yeah, definitely. So Mark's book is Every Shot Counts. Do you want to give a little bit of detail about it so people, where people can get it? Oh, it's, you know, Amazon, bookstores, Kindle. So you can get it, you know, wherever books are sold. And It's basically about strokes gained and what it is and how it can be used to set expectations, to benchmark players' progress toward goals, and also how you can use strokes gained for strategy. So it sort of debunks the most famous expression in golf, you drive for show and putt for dough. 
Oh, I see it everywhere, every single day. I'm on a forum with some of my Facebook groups have about 130,000 people. I, I've got access to about a quarter of a million people. And the amount of times you still hear the drive for show, putt for dough, and I just put a link to your book in there. <laughs> I, say, I would read this because even when you say, even when you give a, a nice, eloquent answer that, well, actually, the latest statistics by Mark Brody show that that's not true. People will just argue and argue and argue until they're blue in the face. So I just put a link to your book in there. But for all those people who don't understand this, if you were to explain strokes gained to, you know, a six-year-old, how would you start that conversation? Well, my son, Christopher, sort of grew up on strokes gained and we used to track his golf when he was a junior golfer and he was probably eight or nine years old and he understood it pretty well. So it's certainly not beyond a six, seven, eight-year-old to understand. But I say, one is, you know, a good shot and a bad shot when you see it. You know that if you're 100 yards out in the fairway and you dump it in a bunker, it's not a good shot. And you know, if you're 150 yards in the rough and you put it to 15 feet, that is a good shot. So we all have an intuitive notion what good and bad shots are. And what strokes gain does is it quantifies that, not just by saying good or bad, but actually giving a numerical value, as in you gained three-tenths of a stroke on that shot, or you lost a half a stroke on that other shot. So it measures strokes gained as progress to the hole, but measured in terms of strokes. So if you stand on a tee and you're 420 yards away from the hole, maybe the average score is 4.1. And if you swing and miss, you have a complete whiff, <laughs> you've uh, spent one swing and you've got no closer to the hole. So your strokes gained is minus one because you took one swing and you made no progress. So in a word, strokes gained is progress to the hole, but not measured in terms of distance, measured in terms of, of strokes. Does that make sense? Or you want a little more detail? No, that's the perfect example. The whiff is the easiest one to understand. I was thinking of all the fractional strokes, but we can go into detail on those ones. But yeah, the whiff is a complete stroke lost, you'd say. So yeah. I'm, it, you hit it out of bounds, right? You hit it out of bounds and now you're hitting three from the same spot. So you lost two strokes. Every time you hit it out of bounds, it's a stroke in distance. So your strokes gain on that is minus two because you, you're two strokes worse off on the scorecard, but you haven't made any progress to the hole. Perfect. So this allows you to compare from one player to the next then, doesn't it? It allows you to compare across against the field, really. Yeah. So, if, you know, if one person hits a drive 200 yards in the fairway and another one hits it 250 yards in the fairway, you know, the 250 yard drive is, is better. Strokes gained will quantify that in terms of fractions of a stroke. Maybe it's two or three tenths of a stroke better. So in terms of, you know, fairways hit, they both look the same, but the 50 yards is like, well, how much does that really help you out? And it's hard to measure 50 yards on a drive with, you know, 50 feet on a putt. And another sort of uh, ridiculous expression in golf is, you know, a 300 yard drive is worth as much as a three foot putt. And you probably heard that a number of times. And in the one sense, it's true because they're both one stroke. When you write it down on a scorecard, they both count one. But if you phrase the question a little bit differently, you'll see the reality is, is very different, that you shouldn't count a 300-yard drive and a three-foot putt the same. So if I gave you a choice, would you rather have 
all your drives be 300 yards in the middle of the fairway for one round? Or would you like all your putts three feet and in to be sunk in one stroke? Obviously, the 300-yard drives, yeah. Of course, right? This notion is completely specious that they're worth the same because everybody that's played golf for for a few minutes would would take the 300-yard drives. So you, you can't count them the same. I think the one thing that your book and just following your work over these years, and to be honest, I just want to thank you for doing it. I mean, you've... And I resisted. I read... Every shot counts that's sitting next to me. I still refer to it. And I probably read it in 2015. And I I resisted a lot of the ideas at first because it went against everything I was taught to believe and all the myths that were passed around amongst golfers. I'm like, oh, there's no way, you know, putting is so important. And not to say it's not important, but I didn't understand. I think for me, it's the separation value of what it shows. So for example, when we talk about the 300 yard drive and the three foot putt, I think about what's the worst result. So when I hit a drive off the tee, we know I could hit it into a fairway bunker. I can hit it into the trees and be in a recovery situation. I could top the ball. I could hit it out of bounds. Those results will have such a massive impact on my score for that hole versus the worst result from three feet I'm going to make that putt, I don't know, 90 plus percent of the time. Like, I'm not going to three putt it. Like, and we'll go into a bit more nuance. I want to talk about each portion of the game and kind of like your top level thoughts. But for me, that's where it helped is showing the separation because, you know, fairways hit, it's just not enough detail. I can hit my pitching wedge on all 14 holes where I have to hit a, a tee shot and hit every fairway. And, your calculations will show that I will actually be losing strokes versus someone who is hitting at 275 yards because of that massive gap in distance. You know, this is a game of proximity. So it totally changed the way I think about the game. It's helped me become a better golfer and certainly and help the information I give out on my website to be more accurate. So just a quick thank you for everything you've done because I was one of those people who, you know, placed too much emphasis on parts of the game that were not separating me from other golfers and making me better. Well, I appreciate the kind words, John, and would say I'm thankful that you're open-minded because many people have preconceived notions and, you know, they'll kind of fight to the death rather than change their mind. And I've heard, you know, lots of arguments about why putting is important. And it's not to say putting is not important. Every shot counts means everything does count, but some matters more or less. But I hear the arguments against some of these ideas, and I've been trying to come up with counter arguments for each of them. And I think one of the misconceptions is there are times you can remember quite vividly when a tournament comes down to sinking a putt on the 72nd hole. And so that putt is clearly hugely important, but it's one shot out of 270 or so shots, and it's by one person versus a field of maybe 150 players. So there's a difference between that putt, which is clearly important, and sort of, if you imagine a horse race, well, for that putt to have mattered that much, what did the person have to have done to get into that position to beat the other 149 players in the field and need that one putt to win. And so you can't just look at that putt in isolation. You have to look at all the shots and see the relative contribution. And I think 
One fairly convincing argument is if you take a look at the top 10 in the world golf rankings, and those are the players that have won the most, won the biggest tournaments, have the most top 10s. And you can see that it's filled primarily with great ball strikers and pretty average putters. And you take a look at where are the best putters in the world in the official world golf rankings, and they're, they're nowhere near the top typically. So, you know, Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, Justin Thomas, all these players are great ball strikers. They're very good drivers. They're very good with their approach shots. And for the most part, they're, they're average putters. And when they putt well, they have a much better chance of, of winning. So that can be the separator between being in a top 10 and winning, but they tend to be, you know, in the top 10 of the leaderboard in, in the last round more often than the best putters in the world. So the long game basically puts you into position to win. And then it's whether your putting is on or off that week, which is, you know, I would always consider putting a lot more out of our control, especially when I read Dave Peltz's book, The Putting Bible, when I was about 15 years old, I think I put that down thinking, how am I ever going to hold a putt again? <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, he mentioned about the lumpy donut, the spikes, the all the nuances with breaking. And so... Yeah, there's so much that's out of our control, let's just say, with putting, whereas with long game, certainly much more in, I wouldn't say in our control, but what we do has a bigger influence on the outcome. That's right. I agree with that. So why don't we, this podcast is for, quote unquote, the average golfer. And I think what's been interesting about your work, and I know you have the app Golf Metrics, where you're tracking golfers of all different scoring levels. Why don't we go through, let's start with tee shots. And in the context of, you know, plenty of golfers who are listening to this are always wondering, like, how do I get from a 20 handicap down to a 15 or a 10 to a 5? Let's start with some of your, I think Adam and I have shared them on this podcast in different episodes, but I want to hear from your mouth directly. What have you found about tee shots in general when you started with strokes gained over a decade ago? to now where you've been able to verify the results, you know, tracking average real golfers performance on the course, not just PGA tour players. What have you found in terms of separating themselves from being that, you know, the golfer you are to the golfer you want to be in terms of scoring? Sure. Well, I didn't say this first, but I think driving distance determines your scoring potential. And so if you only hit the ball 200 yards, it's pretty hard to become a scratch golfer, if not impossible. And I would say for those golfers, you want to play the right set of tees so that you want to play a set of tees where with three good shots, you can reach a par five with two good shots. You can reach all the par fours and one good shot. You can reach all the par threes. So driving distance is clearly important, but I place something more important than that, which is avoiding the big miss. Yes. It doesn't matter how far you hit it. You can hit it, you know, 300 plus yards but if you have more than one penalty stroke in a round from your drives meaning two or more that's too many and so the first thing for amateur golfers i would say is paying proper respect to the hazards and given that out of bounds sort of is outside the boundary of the course, if there's out of bounds on one side of a hole, it's usually not, not out of bounds on the other. Otherwise, it's a pretty poorly, de poorly designed hole. And that typically means that you can 
by a strategic choice of where you're aiming or where your target is on the tee shot, aim far enough away from the out of bounds so that your worst tee shot goes out of bounds pretty rarely. And by pretty rarely, I mean less than one in 50 times. So less than 2% of your tee shots where there's out of bounds in play should go out of bounds. So it's not zero, but it's a lot closer to zero than most average golfers think. And, you know, if you're in a foursome and one out of four people hits it out of bounds, and that's your typical foursome that you play with, you you start to believe that that's what should happen because that's what you see happening. And that's just way too aggressive if your goal is to, to lower your average score. So I'd say, number one, avoid the big miss. And then, you know, longer term, you know, distance is worth a lot. So it really increases your scoring potential. And I think there's, you know, all sorts of gains from distance. How much, say, for example, someone gained 20 yards and for argument's sake, they kept the same club face presentation and accuracy. How many strokes would they gain? So here's an example that I often use to explain strokes gained in a little bit of a roundabout way. But take somebody like Dustin Johnson, who is about 20 yards longer than average, or Roy McIlroy, similar, Bubba Watson is similar, Bryson is similar. So they're about 20 yards longer than the PGA Tour average on every drive, not on the one drive on the longest par five hole where they're trying to bomb it, just every drive, even on some forced layups. So 20 yards for them is worth about a tenth of a stroke per drive. And every sounds, time you hit it. <laughs> yeah, that's the key, Adam. Every time you hit it, because a tenth of a stroke sounds like, oh, well, who cares about a tenth of a stroke? That's meaningless. But no, multiply that by the 14 tee shots on par fours and fives, and they're gaining 1.4 strokes around on their added distance. And that's, you know, four and a half strokes. Actually, is it 1.4, five and a half, I guess, for a round tournament? I mean, it's enormous. Well, here's a follow-up question to that because I've seen some numbers when you look at more recreational golfers who are you know driving the ball, let's say, 220 yards. And you did mention this in your book. You said that distance is important for pros, but it's even – and the thing that I think gets lost, everyone's like, oh, that bomb and gouge stuff is just for the pros. Based on everything I've seen from your work and then other stat tracking companies, it's that the 20 yards is worth even more to a 15 handicap. Because when they go from driving it, let's say, 220 yards to 240, I've seen different calculations where from certain levels of players, it's as much as you know, 0.2 or a quarter of a stroke for that. Do you see that change based on skill level? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's many things that are consistent across skill levels. But as you point out, John, as you go up in handicap, the value of 20 yards is worth more. And it can be double or almost triple in, in some cases. So you're, you're spot on there. Where would it be triple? What example would that be 0.3 per drive? No, I think if you, know, if you only hit at 180, say, and you're playing a reasonably long course, 20 yards can be worth three-tenths of a stroke per, wow. per drive. Because you know, think of it as you can't reach almost any par four and two, and then now you can. And so instead of having to get up and down in the best players, aren't getting up and down much more than half the time. So if you're now actually hitting some of these greens because of the 20 extra yards or you're carrying hazards instead of dumping shots into the hazard, that's also big. You know, if you've got a, you know, 180 yard carry to reach a fairway 
and you can only do it half the time and now you're 20 yards longer and you can clear it almost every time, then that's a huge gain. My current definition, and again, my thinking on this changed dramatically over the years. I was taught to believe it was fairway or bust as a junior golfer. Oh, me too. I, I so wish you were around while I was learning golf. Yeah. I mean, me and Adam were like the classic, like scared golfer who would hit four iron off of every hole so we can hit fairways. And as I, you know, now seeing your research and working with other people like Scott Fawcett and actually measuring my own stats and seeing what's going on, it's done two things. So, my current definition of what I think is a good tee shot is, did you hit it the distance that's you know reasonable for you? So, if my average drive is about 275, if I hit it somewhere around there in an acceptable window, great. But the thing that really I changed my thinking on is, if I have a clear path to the green and an opportunity to advance the ball on the green, meaning I let's say I'm in the rough, I have a decent lie, I consider that a successful tee shot if I've avoided a fairway bunker, a recovery situation in the trees, and of course, not hit it into a penalty area or out of bounds. I don't even use fairways hit anymore. It's become somewhat of an irrelevant statistic to me. I'm just worried, did I, like you said, did I avoid the big trouble and do I have an opportunity to hit this green in regulation or at worst, keep the ball around the green? That is now currently my definition of a successful tee shot, not if I hit the fairway. Exactly. That's a great definition and I wholeheartedly agree and uh, hope many of the listeners will take that to heart. Now, Mark, when you miss the fairway, so say you hit the rough, how many shots does it cost you or point, how many fractional shots would it cost you? So for a PGA Tour player, it might cost three-tenths of a shot. For a recreational golfer, it's more like a tenth, depending on you know what course you play. So I'm talking about in the rough, but you have an unobstructed shot to the green. And there's a lot of players when if the you know, high handicappers that they'd rather be in the rough, if it's light rough than on the fairway, because on the fairway, you can hit it a little bit fat, then the ball goes 40 yards and in the rough it kind of sits up a little bit. So the rough is a penalty for sure, but for some players, it's, it's not very much of a penalty. And the, the average penalty for the rough for, for amateurs, for, you know, typical, either country club or public courses is much less than you see on the PGA tour. You know, it's about half what you see on the PGA tour. Wow. So if a pro adds 20 yards to the game, they're gaining 1.4 shots around. And, you know, so effectively 1.4 shots gained, even if they miss four more fairways as a result of that 20 yards extra game, which is unlikely, but even if they did, they would still be better off with that extra 20 yards as long as there's no out of bounds there but you know typically an out of bounds shot is something that's so bad it would have occurred regardless of what club you used or what distance you hit so that's really i'm trying to work out quickly the math of that for amateurs because if they gain 0.3 of a shot every time so it's 14 times 0.3 anyone <laughs> it's too early for me five i mean maybe four point am i doing that right something like four and a half strokes around Something like that. So basically, they can miss every single fairway. And if they've got that 20 yards extra, they're going to be better off. Again, assuming that there are no, no more out-of-bound shots than usual. That's right. And that's why you ought to focus on 
what John was saying is his definition of a good drive is whether, you know, you don't drive it into a penalty and you can advance the ball to the green, not whether you're in the fairway or up, because that's relatively minor. For the pros, you go, go back to this example with, with, say, Dustin Johnson. So he gains 1.4 strokes because of his 20 extra yards, but how many additional fairways does he miss? And the answer is about one. So he might hit eight fairways instead of nine, which is the PGA Tour average. So that one additional missed fairway brings his total gain down to 1.1 strokes around. And that's basically where the best drivers in the world are, gaining about 1.1 strokes around, given their added distance and their less accurate tee shots. And what's surprising is if you miss one additional fairway per round compared to the PGA Tour average, you're near the bottom of the driving accuracy list. And so people will look at that and they say, well, Dustin Johnson is ranked 150th in driving accuracy. Look at how bad that is. It's one fairway more missed. That's it. It's not a lot. And they don't hit any more in the penalties than the PGA Tour average. So that missed fairway doesn't lead to more penalty strokes. That's what always bothers me now that I've looked into it and seen it for myself and not just accepted the face value argument because people love to bring up the bomb and gouge thing is, and you mentioned this even in every shot counts that you found that the longest drivers are actually incredibly accurate. You know, Adam and I talk a lot about impact laws on this podcast, specifically face control where the club face is pointing at impact. And I've played in tournaments with guys who are swinging over 120 miles an hour. And I've seen what happens when they cannot control where their club face is pointing at impact or where they're making impact on the face. And I'm sure you've seen this too in person, Mark. The ball goes off the planet. I mean, it's just unbelievable at that speed how far offline you can hit it. And then when you watch a player like Dustin Johnson, Rory and Bryson now, certainly Brooks Kepka, guys like him, it's unbelievable how well they can control the club face at impact where they're making impact on the face and where the face is pointing at those speeds because they're not wild drivers of the golf ball. They're incredibly accurate. And like you said, when they're missing, it's just like, okay, if they miss the fairway, maybe they're five yards off to the left or right, which is why fairways hit is a very misleading statistic. Now I could see if Dustin Johnson added 25 more yards of distance and was hitting it all over the planet, then he can't play on the PGA tour because it's such a razor thin margin. Anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> Should we go on to um, approach shots? Do you have any questions on that, John? Yeah, I mean, I think knowing that, I mean, Mark, I'll let you explain it, but seeing in your book and since then that, you know, iron play and approach play is, is the biggest differentiator in scoring. Do you suggest to most club level, you know, public course golfers that, if they want to get their handicap down to its lowest level, they better be hitting more greens in regulation or at least having a decent enough approach play where they're not shooting themselves in the foot with their iron shots. Yeah, I think it's both of those, but I don't think greens in regulation is the right measure because of similar to fairways hit. It doesn't distinguish between a slight miss where you're one or two yards off the green in the fairway and you can maybe putt it. Yep and a bigger miss where you're 10 yards off the green in the water where you have to take a penalty drop. They both count as a missed green in regulation, but they're not at all the same. So I tend not to focus on greens in regulation. And for approach shots, 
I like to focus on proximity, but measure it slightly different than than most people measure proximity. I look at the the leave in feet where half the shots are closer to the hole and half the shots are further from the hole. So imagine you hit you know, a whole bunch of shots from 150 yards in the fairway and you sort the distances to the hole after the shot from smallest to largest, well, you take the middle value and then half are closer than that value and half are further away than that value. And it turns out from 150 yards in the fairway, a typical PGA Tour Pro will have a leave of about 23 feet. So half the shots will be inside of 23 feet and half the shots will be outside of 23 feet. When you move on to club golfers, like a golfer whose average score is 90 will have a median leave of 56 feet. So half their shots will be within 56 feet and half greater than 56 feet. And 56 feet is more than double the 23 feet of a pro. So anybody that thinks that, oh, approach shots from 150 yards, just get it there. Either put it on the green or you get close enough for an up and down. Like to think that an average golfer is going to shoot about three, 3.1, 3.2 strokes from 150 yards is sort of fooling themselves. The difference in skill level is enormous. And that is the biggest separator between pros and scratch golfers, between scratch golfers and 10 handicaps, between 10 and 20 is this approach shots. And would you say with approach shots that amateurs are missing more left to right? Do they have a bigger disposition left to right or depth-wise, long and short? Well, the number one thing is the center of their shot pattern tends to be short of the green. They I'm under so club. happy he said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it could actually be equal left and right and long and short, but we're up and down. But the main problem with most amateurs is thinking that you know, they hit the seven iron 150 yards. So they're 150 yards away from the flag and it could be uphill into the wind. And it's only their best seven iron that really goes 150. And so they tend to leave it, you know, 10 yards short, but maybe 20 or 30 yards short of the flag. So having a shot pattern that is consistently so far away from the center of the green is certainly one of the components to poor proximity. Just knowing how far you hit your shots and being understanding your carry distances and being realistic about how far you hit the ball can can go a long way to lower scores. It's why we're such a big proponent of strike quality, because I think that's one of the biggest things that determines how far you hit it, you know, your ground contact and your face contact. If you get those two things correct or functional then you're going to hit a good quality distance and then after that like you said you know looking at your expectations when you are striking it well or even when not how far do you hit it and giving yourself a little bit of a buffer in most cases to to get that center of the shot pattern in a in a good place that's right yeah here's a question for you mark and maybe you can just give like an approximation if we're looking at the game, do you quantify or, or separate the game in terms of tee shots, approach shots, wedge play, and putting? Is that like a fair in terms of, you know, shot tracking? And just so I know, like, how do you separate? Where does like wedge play start and approach play end? Is it 100 yards for you? What do you usually Yeah, use? so for me, it's 100 yards. Okay. Um, so I call short game just 
to be consistent with Dave Peltz, who did a lot of good work. He defined short game as inside 100 yards, so I followed his his lead. The PGA Tour takes around the green to be within 30 yards of the front edge of the green. And so we only differ on shots about, you know, from 70 to 100 yards, of which there's not very many. <laughs> so okay. it's almost the same for both of us. So in terms of, I think the big word that I always like to, to bring up, and, and again, thanks to you, is how golfers differentiate themselves from each other in terms of scoring. Answering that question, how do I get from a 20 handicap to a 13? So let's divide up tee shots and approach shots and leave wedge play and putting in the other section. Roughly speaking, what percentage of that separation value in terms of overall scoring could be lumped together for tee shots and approach shots, if you can answer that? Yeah. So that's one of the most sort of remarkable consistencies between good pros and average pros and between low and high handicappers is that if you look at a group of typical 90 shooting golfers and typical 80 shooting golfers, those 10 strokes divide up to about six and a half strokes outside 100 yards mm -hmm. and three and a half strokes inside 100 yards. So to go from 90 to 80 in a typical path, you'd need to get six and a half strokes better in your, your drives and your approach shots and three and a half strokes better in your, your wedge game and putting. And that sort of 65-35 breakdown also applies to the best golfers in the world. And it applies from 100 to 90, 90 to 80, and also between average tour pros and Tiger Woods and the, the top 10s in the world. And so that was sort of uh, surprising to find that regularity. Yeah. And I, for a long time, thought... And again, obviously, putting and wedge play is important. You're, it's, you're saying it's about 35%. But what I saw in my own game and realized looking at the stats is like you can put as much time as you want into wedge play and putting practice, but eventually you're going to hit a wall where you cannot differentiate yourself more. And that's where I, for me, it was really my T game. Like, how did I go from being a five, six, seven handicap now to a plus one? Most of it, a lot of it was being able to hit my driver farther and keep it in play because that was really the area of the game that was like just killing me. You know, you talk about penalty shots. Um, <laughs> there were many of them. And that's what I've... It's interesting that it holds up so consistently across the different scoring levels because a lot of people think, well, I'm an outlier. And I would say to them, well, then you need to track your stats. And, you know, there are apps like your app, Golf Metrics. There are, you know, systems like Arcos and ShotScope where you can track your short shots on the course now and they, they, they are using your stroke gain methodology. Do you see any of these like major outliers in your app or is it most people like it, it, you know, the biggest jump in scoring is going to come from approach play and tee shots? If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor, LinkedIn, by visiting linkedin.com slash sweetspot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. They have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere. And this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. 
LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why two and a half million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. It is sort of an individual thing. And so those averages are averages and they apply to most golfers. But if you take an individual golfer, I do recommend what what you suggested, which is track your shots using golf metrics, Arco, shot scope, whatever. And you'll find your own sort of golf DNA. And it's possible that your driving and approach shots are great and it's your putting that's holding your back. And you will find that out. If you're a pro on the PGA Tour and you're trying to gain a quarter of a stroke here and a tenth of a stroke there, you need to be pretty careful about you know, using the shot link data to figure out where your strengths and weaknesses are. And like you said, you, you end up running into a wall that to win a golf tournament on the PGA tour, you can't win it by chipping and putting because the only way that means you're missing a whole lot of greens and you're getting up and down for par. You can't win a tournament that way. So getting up and down can keep around going, but you're not going to win <laughs> sort of doing that. For amateur golfers, it's just sort of unrealistic to expect that they're going to sink 60% of their eight footers over a long period of time when on the PGA Tour, the the putters sink 50% of their eight footers. So you can't put in all your time on, on eight footers to try and exceed some bounds that sort of beyond the limits of either human performance or green smoothness that you can't really, really get beyond. But the nice thing, again, about tracking your own shots is you might have a particular deficiency from the green side sand and golf metrics or stroke gain analysis will show you that. And so if you just look at your sand saves and it says, okay, my sand saves aren't good. Well, that doesn't tell you, is it because your sand play isn't good or your short putting isn't good? Maybe you're hitting your sand shots pretty well and you're missing the putt. So it allows you to isolate each type of shot and you know, laser focus in on the place that'll bring the most bang for the buck. Yeah. And and for someone like me, I, I clearly saw, I mean, I used game golf years ago initially, and it was just blatantly obvious that I was losing so many strokes off the tee. And it was a combination of playing too conservatively. I was laying back too much. And then when I was hitting driver, it wasn't great. So I needed to put a lot of work into my driver. So I'm glad you said it can be individualized because I think there are often low-hanging fruit in certain people's games. They just need to find out what they are. And, you know, just checking off fairways hit, greens and regulation, and putts per round on your scorecard, obviously you'd agree with this. It's just not enough information. It doesn't tell the full story. Yeah, it's really – those stats are just so misleading. If you take a look at the PGA Tour at the end of 2020, the leader in greens and regulation – was about 180th in the FedEx Cup points list. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the top 10 in the FedEx Cup points list was Roy McIlroy, and he was about 70th or 80th in greens and regulation. There was just like no connection between those two. It doesn't make sense for pros, and it's not a useful diagnostic for, for amateurs. It's an old school stat that started because it was easy to count. It's easy to count if you hit a fairway or not. It was easy to count whether you hit a green in regulation or not, but it's 
so poor information that it's it's not worth doing it really. Adam, do you have any more questions on approach shots before we move on? I was just thinking about the greens and regulation one. Where is the flaw within that if you're to say that greens and regulation is a, a bad stack to track? I know certainly with putting, it's kind of obvious. And I, I remember certain examples where people have 33 putts in a round and they come off saying, well, I putted really well that day or versus there's an anecdote of Tiger having something like 25 putts and saying that he putted poorly and, and strokes gained in kind of proved that right. So with both of those stats, all pick one, where's the error in the thinking there? So there's a number of flaws in greens and regulation. The first one is, he said it doesn't distinguish between missing a green by two feet and missing it by 50 yards. Mm-hmm. So that's one. It doesn't credit you for hitting a par three tee shot two feet versus 50 feet. So they could both be greens in regulation, yet it doesn't give you extra credit for you know knocking it stiff versus barely making it on the green. There is another sort of less obvious flaw, which is the goal of golf is to shoot the lowest score. It's not to hit the most greens. If you set out to have a golf tournament on the PGA Tour where you awarded first place to the player who hit the most greens in regulation, they would all hit a lot more greens in regulation than they do now. Why? Every shot, they would aim for the middle of the green. And that would be a horrible strategy if you're 70 yards away from the hole to aim at the middle of the green versus firing at that flag and trying to make birdie or or hole out hole out for eagle. So it sort of aligns. Like I know that 90 golfers don't hit as many greens in regulation typically as 80 golfers, and 80 golfers don't hit as many greens as in regulation as a pro. But you might as well just tell me the score. If you're using that to diagnose whether a person has got a ball striking strength or weakness, forget it. It just doesn't help. If somebody shoots 90 and hits three greens in regulation, it doesn't tell you very much about their ball striking. It tells you they probably are shooting around 90. <laughs> it doesn't tell you, should they work on their driving? Should they work on their approach shots? What it, so it's sort of a, a useless stat, really. It's not worth the trouble of keeping. So I tend to track things like how close they were proximity to their aim and things like that. Uh, That tells me a little about their strategy as well. Because say, for example, if someone misses a green left, well, where were they aiming relative to that as well? And I also track certain mental faults as well, like, you know, whether it was a club selection issue because someone could miss a green short and if they've struck it pure versus you know, selecting the wrong club, then that needs to be kind of quantified as well, especially as a coach when I'm looking at it. Because like you said, if someone says to me, well, I've missed a bunch of greens, I'm like, well, yeah, that doesn't tell me enough, really. You know, where were you aiming? How close was it to your aim? What club did you use? Or what was the reason for missing the green? Was it a poor strike? Was it a directional miss? Or like I said, was it a uh, misjudge of conditions? Perhaps just you hit the shot you wanted to and the wind blew. So I track all these different things as a coach that I need that I suppose goes beyond the pure math of it as well. Well, those are great. If you want to do sort of a a diagnosis or an autopsy of of a round, I think that's exactly what, you know, what you're doing is great. And I think 
golfers that don't have you as a coach, if they go back through the round, even if they're not tracking their stats, they just go through shot by shot and think of how close was I to my targets? And if it went wrong, why did it go wrong? And making some notes, like you said, was it a poor strike or was it poor club selection? Was it a poor target? I think you can learn a lot more from that than you can from just counting greens and regulation. What I try and do, and again, I, I would just tell people to use a stat tracking system that can do it for you, uh, even the ones that automatically track for you because it just makes it easier. What I like to do after my rounds is if you can remember them all, some people, I guess, have a hard time remembering all their shots. I just kind of review every shot of the round while the information is fresh in my brain. You know, things like, was that a miss because of a bad target? Was it just the dispersion of my shots? I think, you know, one thing that's great about having all this data is understanding that sometimes, you know, our dispersion circles are a lot larger than we think, and you're not always going to hit it exactly where you're aimed. So I kind of go back and say, did I make a strategic mistake? Did I make a mental mistake? Or was it just the normal variance of golf? And often I like to think about that specifically on my tee shots and my approach shots. Um because those are ones I'm incredibly focused on. I want to talk about wedge play. I don't want to keep you here forever, Mark. We can turn this into a five-hour podcast, but I'm sure you've got better things to do. Let's talk about, I guess, Pels define them as the finesse wedge shots inside 100 to 30 yards, wherever you're going to cut it off. One of the great things that your book dispelled and since then is dispelled is the, you know, maybe the laying up to your favorite yardage type thing with wedges. Like, can you give us some, your, your biggest findings in wedge play? Yeah. So that is, I think more in, in like an approach shot or a strategic question, which is, would you be better off laying up to your favorite yardage or trying to get as close to the green and two on a par five? And the data is sort of, so clear on this that from if your favorite yardage is 80 to 100 yards, the scoring average is greater there than it is from 20, 30, 40, or 50 yards. And you can see the change on the PGA Tour over the last 10 or 15 years where instead of laying up to their favorite yardage, think of this as, you know, 80 to 120 yards, players are going for the green in two when they can, when they have a shot at it, assuming that there's, you know, you got to be, again, respectful of the hazards and you don't want to, you know, go for the green and put it in the water if, if the green is guarded, guarded by the water. So you have to be, be careful about certain situations, but as a general rule, closer is better. And there's a huge gradient that if you can get the ball within 20 or 30 yards of the green, the scores drop so dramatically compared to 70 or 80 yards that it's, that it's a no-brainer that if you have that choice, you ought to go for it. Again, being careful of hazards. Yeah, I still get that question a lot from people. And certainly I've changed too. I used to be someone who on a par five, if I couldn't get there in two, I'd hit like an eight iron with my second shot because I was so scared of a 40-yard wedge shot. And the answer to that question was like, hey, I've got to work on those shots. But it kind of gets back to that it's almost like your worst putt is better than your worst chip. And I often say that to people, it's the same thing. Your worst 100-yard shot <laughs> is usually going to be way worse than your worst 40-yard shot. And mentally, it's hard to think about that. 
because you know we we have all these things as golfers with the context and results of shots, and we have such a hard time taking a step backward and looking at things globally. And that's really what strategy is: is it's not evaluating on a hole by hole or round by round basis. It's stacking the odds in your favor in the long term. And that was one of my great takeaways from your book was that, you know, you showed that at every ability level that being, again, not taking on excessive risk like hazards and stuff like that, remove that from the equation, but all things being equal, it's about proximity, which is kind of a reoccurring theme of your findings. Aside from that, like that was maybe a strategic question I asked you, what have you found out in terms of like wedge play in terms of how golfers separate themselves and scoring? Like how does that factor into things? So most of the misses, when you miss a green, most of the misses are closer to the green than further away from the green. So that if you want to divide up off green, but inside a hundred yards, zero to 30 yards is more important to practice than 30 to 60, which is more important than 60 to a hundred. The number of shots from 60 to hundred yards is typically much smaller than it is inside of 60 yards. And that's even dominated by being inside of 30 yards. So one is if you're practicing your wedge play and by wedge play, I don't mean, you know, 120 yard shots that you, that you might hit. I'm talking about, you know, chipping and, and lob shots and finesse shots that closer to the green is more important. And also, especially for amateurs practicing out of the rough, and also the sand, not just chipping from the fairway, because more shots for amateur misses are from the rough than from the fairway. So learning how to deal with different kinds of lies. And most people, when they're practicing, they're chipping, you know, they might be 20 yards off the green and they're just chipping off of a fairway. Well, that's not going to necessarily translate well to the course if you miss a whole bunch of greens and you're chipping out of the rough or you have these greenside sand shots. So that kind of gets back to the thinking that like, you know, let's think of the average, you know, 90 golfer who is missing, you know, 13, 14, 15 greens per round. They're putting themselves in these situations where they're in all different areas surrounding the green at about 30, 40 yards or within and different lies on the rough. And we've spoken about this on other episodes, the variability of practice, doing different lies in the rough and evaluating the lies and adjusting your technique. Is it a reasonable expectation for a golfer of that level, the golfer looking to break 90 or 80 to get up and down? Or is it more, let's get it on the putting surface, let's say 15 to 20 feet away, maybe make a par here and there, mostly bogeys and avoid that, you know, the double chip, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So I always find the context of that as important for golfers because a lot of the times on the course, people get angry at themselves for shots that are actually quite good for their skill level. Like let's say you were 30 yards off the green and you hit it to 15 feet with your lob wedge. That's not all that bad to me. Absolutely. And Strokes gain really highlights this. If you're 60 yards away in the rough and the pin is cut on the right side of the green and you miss it 10 feet right of the pin and you're in the green side sand, you say, wow, I only missed by 10 feet. You take a look at the strokes gain and you just lost a half or three quarters of a shot. Say, so, yeah, and you that was a horrible strategy because the number one goal, as you pointed out, John, is put the ball on the green in one swing. So whenever you're inside 100 yards, for every handicap golfer, it should be, can I get the ball on the green in one swing? 
So can I get the ball out of the sand and onto the green, not leave it in the sand, not skull it over the green. So once you get down to, you know, 10, five scratch handicaps, then you want to sort of up your level of expectation to, can I get this inside of 15 feet? Like you said, on the green and inside of 15 feet, not say kill yourself if you're outside of five feet or inside of five feet, that's way too high a standard that, you know, the pros aren't going to, aren't going to meet that standard. So like to think about shot patterns are that you've got this array of shots and maybe it's for a high handicap golfer and you're only 30 yards away, maybe it's 20 or 30 feet wide for lower handicap. Maybe that squeezes into 15 feet and then lower handicap, maybe it squeezes into 10 feet. And that is an enormous improvement. And it's not so much that instead of having a 20 footer, you have a 15 footer that when you squeeze in that shot pattern, you're going to have more three, four and five footers than seven, eight and nine footers. So I think you have to have realistic expectations. Number one, put the ball on the green in one swing. Number two, think about a reasonable target range, which could be 20 feet for a high handicapper and 15 to 10 feet for, for scratch golfers. Yeah. The way I've often communicated to people on my site with wedge play is that, and and you can hopefully agree, maybe disagree if you don't think this is accurate, but I think that wedge play for most golfers, those 90, 80 shooters, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there in terms of you could get a lot of strokes off your handicap quickly just by becoming moderately proficient with these shots, like the ones you spoke about, not leaving it in the bunker or sculling it over the green. Like there's some really quick wins there and you could follow a lot of the advice that Adam and myself are giving with practice and some of the stuff Adam has on his site to fix those things. But eventually you are going to hit a wall, as you said. Like at my level, I'm seeing like, I can't really separate myself that much with wedge play right now, which is why I kind of focused, you know, we had Mike Carroll on last week. Who I know is a big follower of yours, but I turned my differentiators like I'm going to add 20 yards to my drive because I felt putting the work in there would bear more fruit going from, let's say like a zero handicap to a plus one versus me grinding on my wedge game forever, because I just don't know if I have the skill level to get it that much closer. But I can add 20 yards of distance with some physical routines and equipment adjustments I made. So that's kind of how I think of wedge play globally is that like I think from the 2010 handicap level, you can shave some quick strokes off there with proficiency. But eventually, like you kind of hit this wall where it's like, okay, don't spend too much time there because you're going to get tapped out on progress. Is that like a fairly accurate statement? Very accurate. Well put. Okay, good. Adam, do you have any anything to add? I really want to. Putting is going to be my favorite part. But Adam, do we have any <laughs> my, uh, any more wedge thoughts? My brain's going off in all different directions. This. What are your thoughts on? I suppose we've already touched on this in the way the return on time invested. Do you ever ever think of that? So if you have an hour to practice, you know you might not see as much. You're, you're probably not going to add twenty yards in that hour even though that's much better for your long game. So would you say that, you know, if you've just got one hour before a tournament, would you be spending that in a specific area? So, yeah, it really depends on what you mean by that question. If you have one hour and no, I wouldn't, you know, you want to loosen up and do whatever to get ready so that you're not going to the first tee cold. But 
I would say you want to spend some time chipping to see how the greens are reacting and putting to see what the speed of the greens are, because that can be very variable from course to course and from day to day with, with different weather conditions. Whereas, yeah, you don't have an hour. You can't in an hour, you're not going to really change your, uh, your driving distance or anything like that other than warming up. So absolutely there's a difference between Longer term, how do you reduce your score? And short term, you've got an hour. How am I going to score as best as possible in in the next four hours after that? So I think, you know, the, the worst thing would be, you know, you, you don't make a trip to the practice screen. You get on the first hole with a 30-foot putt. And you're not sure how quick the greens are. And you knock it five feet by. And then you miss the comebacker. And that's all from not spending a little bit of time calibrating to the green speed that day. Yeah, I suppose if your first three chips of the day go to instead of three foot, they go to eight foot, you've effectively cost yourself half a shot each time, right? So that's 1.5 shots. So that could have been simply, you know, solved by go, hitting the chipping green for five minutes even and just getting a feel for how are these things bouncing, how are they spinning, how are they rolling out. So I think I've kind of intuitively landed on that approach myself. You know, I, I would spend a lot more time working on my long game for kind of the overall picture. But pre-tournament, I'd be zoning in a little bit more on the short game because I know the long game. You, you kind of don't lose that as quickly. It's much more stable. You know, if you hit it 300 yards one day and you have even a week off, you're not going to lose that 300 yards. Whereas if you have a week off from chipping and putting, you might lose that extra foot or two of feel and control, which can be significant, I suppose. Absolutely, Adam, agree with that. I view that as like in the context of like off-season and in-season work, like off-season work, I did that. I changed my driver setup. I went to a longer shaft. I was doing super speed training and doing some physical training. Like that was laborious. It took many hours, but I put that work in so it would carry me out through the season. Whereas for example, like tomorrow... I have a tournament at Beth Page Black. I'm going to show up there. It's going to be 95 degrees and humid, which is going to be incredibly comfortable. But I'm going to spend most of my time getting my body ready, doing some dynamic warm-ups like, you know, we got from Mike Carroll in our other episode, and I'm going to chip and putt and feel the speed of the greens. I feel like that's the best bang for my buck in terms of time before the round because as you said, if I can't get the green speeds right, well then I'm going to suffer tremendously. I think that's a great segue to our final topic. Let's talk about putting because I think that's like, if I had to take one big thing that was kind of mind-blowing from reading every shot counts, and I'm sure other people would agree with me, is that you kind of said putting is still important, but not nearly as important as we gave it significance historically in terms of like how scoring occurred in golf. So I'm sure you still get backlash on your putting analysis. Is that correct? Of course, there's lots of reasons for that. But again, at many different levels of golfers, putting accounts for about 15% of the scoring differences for different skill level of golfers. So going from a 90 golfer to an 80 golfer, about one and a half strokes of those differences is putting. And that's significant. It's a you know one and a half strokes. If you can improve your handicap by one, two, or three strokes from one season to the next, you're in the top percentile of of improvers. So it's not to dismiss it as being unimportant. It's just a smaller percentage compared to other parts of the game. 
But I bet if you polled golfers in general and you said, what percentage of golf scoring occurs with putting, <laughs> you'd get responses like 30, 40, 50%. And I might, I probably was one of those people, you know, years ago. Uh, I still see coaches. I still keep, see coaches push it um, right now. You know, they, yeah, they say 36, you know, up to 36 of your strokes occur on the putting green and that's, you know, they just do a straight percentage. And then what they're not doing is the relative significance because how many six inch tap in putts are of those 36 putts, which they were going to go in anyway. It wasn't a score differentiator. I think that's the nuance that stroke skiing has provided. Exactly. I mean, people maybe have 10, 11, 12 putts inside of two and a half feet around. And so in order to separate players, you need both a large number of shots, around and you need skill differences. So if you just count putts and say, okay, it's 35 putts in a round. Yeah. Well, if 10 or 12 of those are inside of two feet where there are no skill differences, they don't count <laughs> there. You might as well just, just wipe them off the board. So what you mean by no skill differences is you, an amateur is just as good as a pro, right? <laughs> an amateur is just, if everybody thinks hundred percent of their one foot putts, then one foot putts are not a score differentiator because there's no skill difference. So you might have a lot of these one foot putts, but they're not separating the scores of, of the two players. It's like uh, 70 yard shots out of the bunker. There could be enormous skill differences between players. But if you only have one of those shots every five rounds, then it doesn't make sense to spend five hours a week practicing 70 yard bunker shots if you only have it, you know, rarely. So it's this combination of where you want to put in your effort is where you have a lot of shots and where there's plenty of room for improvement. And so you'd never tell anybody spend 15% of your practice on one and two foot putts because you have that many one and two foot putts in your round. The main takeaway I got from your putting analysis was that putting is so difficult for every level of golfer, whether you're a PGA Tour player or someone who shoots 100, that it's one of the hardest parts of the game to differentiate yourself. Because if you look at, and I've cited your putting stats a million times on my site and on Twitter, I always refer to that eight-foot putt as kind of the line in the sand that the PGA Tour average is 50%, correct? That's exactly right. So that's often like a great strokes gain example. So if, if the PGA Tour player makes that putt, they are gaining a half a stroke on the field. And if they miss it, they're losing a half a stroke on the field, correct? That's right. And then when you look at the distances, as they get out at 10, 15, 20 feet, like no one's making any putts. <laughs> it's just it's 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 more about speed control and proximity and limiting three putts for the club golfers. Is it more about that for you? Like, what do you feel like? I've kind of taken away is like you spend the time on the putts where you actually have a chance of making them. So that's maybe inside ten feet, and then outside of that, it's really speed control is is controlling how close can you leave the ball to the hole to avoid three putts. Exactly. So is that fair. Yeah, outside of 20 feet, a PGA Tour golfer will average holding one and a half of those putts per four rounds. So less than one every other round do they sink a putt outside of 20 feet. So you just don't see that many players don't average that many hole outs from outside of 20 feet. 
Yeah, but Mark, that's not true. I watched the Rocket Mortgage Classic this weekend, and they were making putts left and right. Every putt was going in. Yeah, that's the uh, the wonder of the TV highlight reel when you only show the makes and you ignore all the misses. I wish they would just show the highlights of the guys who are like missing the cut and at the bottom of the you know shooting seventy eights every week because it happens if you look at the scoreboard. It would. I, I, I personally, this is a whole other topic, but I think television broadcasts have been one of the worst things ever for expectation management for golfers, for myself and everyone else. But that's a whole other topic. So you're right from, let's say, 15 feet or 20 feet and outside. The goal is put your first putt as close to the hole as you can. And if it goes in, that's a bonus. So that will help to minimize three putts. And it's true from a strokes gain perspective. If you three putt, you're, you know, you're losing a stroke somewhere in there. But the reason I say if, you, if you're practicing your putting, you should spend more time in the 3 to 10-foot range than in the 10 to 20-foot range than in the 20 to 50-foot range. You know, it's all a question of degree. 3 to 10 feet is where there's a bigger separation than there is from, say, 25 to 30 feet. So if you get down in two putts from 20 to 30 feet, you're, you're doing fine. But if you sink... 60% of your eight footers instead of 50%, that adds up. So the short putts, the three to 10 footers are, I'd say a little bit more important to practice. And then outside of that range, like you said, it's more work, worrying about speed control. And I of course recommend using an app to track your strokes gain and golf metrics doesn't just give you strokes gain putting, it breaks it down by short, medium and long putts. So if you three putt a lot, it will tell you, is it because you have poor proximity on the first putt or are you missing too many of your second putts? So that I think is more important than how many three putts. But if you want to go for an old school stat, count how many one putts you have. Most people will focus on a three putt because, oh, I had two three putts in the round and it's pretty clear you lost two strokes there, but you might've lost three or four strokes because you missed four, five, six, seven, and eight footers throughout the round. So it's not just three putts, but you also want to keep track of how many one putt greens do you have. Or just keep track of strokes gained using an app. <laughs> right? I think that's where we're leading with all this. What's your? I, I always get this question is, you know, people, if you want to accurately get strokes gained analysis for your putting, you're going to need to know how long each putt was, or at least close enough throughout your round I'm sure this question has been posed to you a million times. How do you suggest for golfers to keep track of that? Are they like kind of estimating and writing it down after each hole? I find it very, very easy. I enter it into the app after each hole. Some people will make a little annotation on a scorecard. But what I say is like, what do you need to get right? If you're 30 or 34 feet away, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not that big of a difference. It's not that big of a deal. So First of all, I tend to pace off all my putts. Either I go from the ball to the hole or the other way around just to get a feel for how long it is. But even if you don't, use your range finder. You can, you can laser you know, your, your 30 or 40 foot putts and that'll give you an idea of the distance. Then when you get close, you do want to know the difference between a five-footer and a seven-footer or a three-footer and a five-footer. There it does matter, but I visualize, okay, my putter is 36 inches, so I know about what three feet is. I'm six feet tall. I know that's two putter lengths. I know the flag stick at our 
at our club is eight feet tall. And if that's lying down there on the green, I can tell whether the putt is further or closer than, than eight feet. But it also takes about two seconds to, to pace it off. And I know, okay, when you're trying to figure out who's, who's closer to the hole, take three paces and you know, okay, that's an 11 footer or a 12 footer. or It's pretty easy to do. So you don't need to get your 30 footers within more than three feet. And when you get inside of 10 feet, you want to be, you know, plus or minus a, a foot or so, which is pretty easy to do by, by eyeballing it. So it's really not that difficult to do. And you get a lot of return for that, that minor investment in time. Yeah, that's what I always wonder. It's like you almost have to make a commitment to do it because if you go back afterwards and try and remember, was that a nine footer on 13 I had? Was that a 17 footer? Like that's not going to, I mean, maybe you'll get in the ballpark, but you know, everyone's memory and depth perception isn't that good. <laughs> yeah. And they said that either you input it right then into the app, like walking to the next tee, it takes two seconds to do that. Or you write a little notation on the scorecard, which is what Mike Carroll does. And then you can input it after the round and it only takes a few minutes doing it that way. I actually like to input it on the app between holes because then that's my scorecard. I don't have a scorecard and I forget about it. And I use that to try and focus on the next shot. I've, whatever's happened has happened. I don't have to worry about the score because I've, I've input it. The, the app already has that. And now I just focus on what's coming up next. So putting, I think that 15% number is still you know, people hear that and they're like, that can't be true. <laughs> and it, it kind of is. I mean, it's not to say putting is not important. It's just, you know, if someone spent 80% of their time practicing their putting versus not doing any long game, whether that's hitting your driver or working on your irons, again, you're kind of, you're not being efficient with your time. I think that's where a lot of people get confused with golf is they'll put a lot of work in on something and then they get frustrated when it doesn't show up in their scoring. And that's why stats can help is because it can show you where you can spend your time efficiently and and catch those low hanging fruit versus just blindly going to the range or the practice facility and saying, oh, I spent two hours. I better lower my handicap now. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way in this game. Yeah. So a couple of uh, comments along those lines. I do some work with Denny McCarthy, who's a really good guy. He was number one in strokes game putting probably for the last couple of years. Hasn't won yet on the PGA Tour. And if you polled your audience, who's Denny McCarthy? Well, maybe, you know, the really avid golf fans will know who he is. And most people would say, who is that? Well, he's the best putter on the PGA Tour. Yet everybody probably knows Roy McIlroy or Justin Thomas or <laughs> John Rahm when they probably haven't heard of Denny McCarthy. And it all matters, but you can't win tournaments based on just putting. And the other thing is, well, that one and a half strokes, that 15% of a 10-stroke difference between a 90 golfer and 80 golfer comes from putting. How many people have had a putting lesson? I know many amateur golfers that have never had a putting lesson in their life and rarely practice putting. So if you haven't, that could be the low-hanging fruit for you. <laughs> You know, if it's one or two strokes, pick it up. Yeah, go. If you're not practicing, take a putting lesson. And and chances are uh, this independent set of eyes from a PGA professional will probably give you some good advice. Awesome. Mark, before we take too much of your time, is there anything that I know we've asked all the questions here, but is there anything that you wanted to come on the podcast and 
and say, is there anything on your mind? Any myths you want to get dispel? Make your declarations yeah. now, Mark. <laughs> I'm trying to find the right words, but... I think we already covered some of this. Like bomb and gouge is a is a misnomer. It's it's not the bomb part. It's the gouge part that uh, these players aren't just missing every fairway and gouging out of the rough. But I would like to sort of thank you both because I've I've followed a lot of your work and it's really good advice that you're giving. And I would say keep up the good work because I really respect what what you guys are are doing and uh, the information that you're giving to to golfers out there. So thank you for that. Thank you. That means a, a lot, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, not to make this a love fest here, but and I'll apologize because I probably was a bit critical of your book when it first came out in my own way. I thought I had to be controversial, make a name for myself in the golf world, and I was just wrong. I was like, you know, it took me a while to the stuff you're saying and that you've written. I would tell everyone to read every shot counts. It's very easy to like read it and be like, oh, that makes sense. Or maybe you'll disagree with it in the beginning. But to internalize it and then actually use that on the course in terms of your strategy, your expectation management, how you're analyzing your game, that's where the effort comes in. And, and again, a huge thank you to you for doing it because I think we were all kind of flying blind. I think a lot of golfers intuitively figured these things out, but to make it so clear and concise, and I would tell everyone to do stat tracking, whether it's with Mark's app, Golf Metrics, or some of the other great ones out there, is that it kind of holds up a mirror to your game. And rather than just like guessing what's going on, you can clearly see it. And then you know where to fix the problems, you know, get help from a professional, adjust your strategy, adjust your practice. It's certainly a, a cliche, but if you keep doing the same things in golf, you will get the same results. So eventually you're going to have to change. And, and that for me was a big change was kind of internalizing all of your findings. So I appreciate the kind words you said, but a, a lot of the advice that I give wouldn't have been possible without the things that you uncovered about golf. Well, that's really uh, nice of you to say. And one of the reasons for writing the book and the biggest reason for creating the golf metrics app was to help golfers improve and that's sort of music to my ears to hear that it's had uh you know even a little bit of an impact i've heard some college coach just say that they changed the way they practice now and others have said you know some of the strategy advice in the book that they their team shaved six or eight strokes off their tournament because they're a little bit more mindful of their strategy or using the analytics to make better decisions. So that's sort of the goal. And I think, you know, lower scores make the game more fun. I mean, some people really don't care about their scores and they just want to have a, a birdie somewhere in the round to, to uh, have a good conversation at the, at the 19th hole with, with their buddies. But for players that are trying to get better, I think this is an essential aid or piece in, in your toolkit. Track your shots and figure out how you're doing. Awesome. So if you haven't read it, get Every Shot Counts. You can check out Golf Metrics. It's on every app store, correct, Mark? And I think there's a website as well. That's right. Yes. It's okay. on, uh, yeah, for Android and iPhone. Okay. And you can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Brody. Is there, you've been generous with your time. Is there anything else you'd love to plug? No, nope, that about covers it. Thanks a lot. John and Adam. No problem. Great having you on, Mark. Okay. We're probably going to have to have you on in the future again because I probably have – I just like thought of 10 more questions I wanted to <laughs> me ask too. you. But me too. We're just going to – we'll end it there. Thanks again. And everyone, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. We keep growing. We keep getting more positive reviews. So, thank you. And we'll be back next week with another episode.